Welcome to this episode of Witness to Yesterday, the podcast of the Champlain Society. My name is Patrice Dutille. We cover a wide range of topics on Witness to Yesterday, and the subject this time makes me a bit nostalgic. Our theme today is wrestling. Yes, the manly art of fighting for your life. Or maybe fighting for your dinner, if wrestling is more of a show. I remember spending wonderful weekend afternoons with my grandparents in East End Montreal watching grainy black and white wrestling matches on television and rooting for Jacques Rougeau or Mad Dog Vachon, their personal favorites. It was always a lot of fun. My grandparents loved to watch these guys and I loved watching it with them. Wrestling has been something humans have been doing since Cain and Abel, I suspect, and well, you won't be surprised to learn that they've been wrestling forever in the Canadian West. My guest today is Nathan Hatton, professor of history at Lakehead University, and his book is Thrashing Seasons, Sporting Culture in Manitoba and the Genesis of Prairie Wrestling. It is published by the University of Manitoba Press. We reach Professor Hatton at his office in Thunder Bay, Ontario. Nathan Hatton, welcome to the Champlain Society podcast. Thank you so much for having me, and I'm looking forward to coming to grips and getting a toehold on the, the history of, of wrestling and, and whatever very easy sort of segues we can use with grappling with history or, or, or what have you. <laughs> okay, you've got me going already. You're the witness to yesterday for this episode, Nathan. What happened in June 1923? Well, to look at June 1923, we might have to back up one month, and we'll talk about perhaps May and June of 1923, because we saw Jack, Ty Jack Taylor, who was uh, the, the Canadian heavyweight wrestler par excellence, really Canada's dominant, and really their only really great heavyweight wrestler at that time. Uh, squaring off in the, the first of a, a series of matches against uh, Taro Miyake. So on, on one side, you had Taylor, who could justifiably lay claim to being the best heavyweight wrestler in Canada. And he was an exponent of the catch-as-catch-can style of wrestling. Uh, it has its modern origins in England, but it was really modified to meet the tastes of, of North American audiences. And on the other side, you had Taro Miyake of Japan. And... Miyake was a practitioner of jiu-jitsu. Uh, and, and in fact, he deserves a really recognition as one of the people who popularized jiu-jitsu, not only in North America, uh, but also in England. So we could, we could sort of say in the Western world, uh, he was one of the first Japanese to open a gym and uh, teach jiu-jitsu to, to Westerners alongside Yuki Otani. And that was uh, and, uh, in London on, on Oxford uh, Street West. And that was, that was around 1904. So politically speaking, uh, a guy like Teramayaki opening up a gym and teaching jiu-jitsu, it, it came at the right time because Japan was on its way to victory against Russia. And jiu-jitsu became part of that uh, that propaganda. It was part of the propaganda that was put forward by the Japanese government on how the uh, generally diminutive Japanese uh, could defeat the big bad Russians. And uh, across the Western world, people developed a fascination with jiu-jitsu. And although it's true that, that Japan opened up to the West under the, the Meiji Emperor in 1868, there was still considerable mystery that was circulating around that island nation. And that, that sense of exotic mystery and 
uh, Orientalism and conscious propagandizing uh, of jujitsu on the part of, of the Japanese state, uh, all coupled with fear around Asian immigration. All this fed into the myth that the Japanese possess deadly arcane secrets of hand-to-hand -hand combat. Now, by the 1920s, when we're talking about, uh, many of those ideas were certainly still in circulation, um, having been reinforced by, by the popular press and occasional touring acts over the years and books that had been released on the subject. And they're all played up to a considerable degree by the Empire Athletic Club, who promoted the Jack Taylor Taramiyaki bout um, at Winnipeg's Board of Trade building. And the, the matches were really, when we put all of that together, a proving ground with the domestic style, so to speak, being uh, pitted against the import. And ultimately, Taylor won out. So uh, this was a mixed match. So they wrestled under catch as catch can and under jujitsu rules, uh, such as they were. Mixed martial arts. This is sort of like, yeah. This is right. This is this is a progenitor to mixed martial arts. There was already a fascination with pitting one style against another, boxing against wrestling, boxing against jujitsu. So this is a case of wrestling against jujitsu. So under the jujitsu rules, uh, Taylor lost uh, on on points, whatever that meant. That was never clarified, but he dominated. Miyake under catch-as-catch-can. But more, more than just a, a victory on a mat, for many, this was a, a vindication of Anglo-American sporting forms and a symbolic extension uh, of Anglo-American cultural ascendancy. And then that symbolic victory was extended one month later when the two met under jiu-jitsu rules. And this time, the Canadian beat the Japanese wrestler at his own game, uh, but by using mostly North American wrestling style tactics. Nathan, this was not a fair fight, was it? Well, I mean, it depends because, you know, Taylor was bigger. He was a certainly lot bigger. He was a lot bigger. I mean, he was probably <laughs> 25 pounds bigger. But the yeah. idea, the, the mysticism of jujitsu was that you had this, this, this style where size and strength didn't matter. And there was these secret tricks that the Japanese didn't reveal to Westerners. And these are the types of things that could come into play in this type of uh, type of a match. You in your book, you talk about how Jack Taylor, this famous Jack Taylor, we'll come back to him in a second, uh, confronted Reginald Sicky. Now, Reginald Sicky, again, I'm I, I, I'm following your book, was an African American, uh, and this was a big guy. Uh, and Jack Taylor beat him also six months later. Right. So uh, it's interesting because when Reginald Siki came to uh, came to Winnipeg, he was billed as an Abyssinian, but he was not. He was actually an African-American. Um, yeah, he started his wrestling a couple years earlier, but he was actually built up as as an African who'd, who'd come to Canada. And, you know, all of this was coming at a time, you know, him, uh, Jack Taylor fighting Japanese athletes, Jack Taylor fighting, uh, you know, black wrestlers, Jack Taylor fighting, you know, people of, of you know, Central European extraction. You know, all of this came during uh, the early interwar period when, you know, it, as, as many historians, such as the late uh, historian John Heard Thompson, uh, who is sort of a giant on Western history, as they pointed out, you know, Anglo-Canadians were growing increasingly uncomfortable uh, and in many cases, quite vocal with their concerns over immigration 
and the possible waning of Anglo-cultural dominance. So these concerns were played out, therefore, symbolically on the mat. But there's a, there's a bit of an irony here, because this is going on in the 1920s. We have guys like Teromayaki arriving, right, with this, you know, uh, quote-unquote foreign style. But it's ironic because it was actually a Japanese athlete who almost 40 years earlier helped to popularize the, the domestic catch-as-catch kind uh, style of wrestling in Manitoba. And that goes back to 1886, I think you say in your book. Right, absolutely. Correct. Reginald Siki, I, I, I feel obliged to remind our listeners that this Reginald Siki is not the sweet daddy Siki of modern wrestling or, or let's say of the wrestling of the 1970s and 1980s. There was a sweet daddy Siki, I think he's still alive, uh, who was a wrestler in, uh, in, in Eastern Canada uh, in, in much later years. And there's absolutely no relation between the two. There's no relation, but he took the name and uh, Sweet Daddy Siki was also a big name in wrestling in Western Canada as well. So we, we can't oh, let the right? Central okay. Canadians okay. have all the credit for his uh, his, his fame and accolades. <laughs> and he was also an American. Right? Uh, you know, that I'm not sure of. I know that he, okay. he has lived recently and operated a wrestling school in, in Southern Ontario and right. a, a pretty good one, right. uh, I, I understand. Okay, joking aside. Nathan Hatton, what gave you the idea that wrestling in Manitoba was worth a book? <laughs> well, <laughs> you know, it, generally speaking... This is a serious book. This is a serious scholarly book. Right, right. Well, you know, um, if, if we speak uh, more broadly, sport is a good prism for examining uh, you know, wide-reaching cultural patterns. Uh, sport portrays our values, our prejudices... Our, our pressing concerns day to day as a society. And, you know, we see that today as much as ever. Most, uh, famous of all examples, uh, for most listeners would, would probably be Muhammad Ali and how his sporting, uh, life was so closely tied to the American civil rights movement. And, uh, you know, there's been a great deal written of that. And we're, we're, we're really seeing a resurgence of that idea of the, the, the joining of, of sport with, with civil rights, uh, at the present time. But, you know, more, sp more specifically to your question, why study wrestling of all things? Well, we've already hinted at that, I believe. And really what makes wrestling so special is that no one cultural group can claim uh, any type of monopoly on it. Mm -hmm. um, so broadly speaking, and as you articulated so well, it's a, a near universal cultural practice and far more so than, uh, say, ice hockey, which is you know, Canada's national winter game. Uh, it's probably received the lion's share of the attention from historians. Well, uh, you know, that was something that in the period when we're looking at, there wasn't a, a, you know, a broad swath of the Canadian population, demographically speaking, who was, was doing that. But wrestling is something that's been done by people almost everywhere for, for all time. Uh, you know, rugby was the conscious creation of the British elite during the 19th century. Uh, cricket was an aristocratic game. But wrestling was widely practiced. It wasn't created by or disseminated by any one group in particular. And you make the point very well in your book in pointing out that there are long, deep indigenous roots to wrestling in Manitoba. Yeah, absolutely. It's absolutely the case that wrestling has been practiced in the uh, geographic region now politically defined as Manitoba 
since time immemorial. So, uh, you know, in, in the far north, uh, the Inuit commonly practiced wrestling. Uh, you know, even today, this is recognized because they have wrestling in the Arctic Winter Games. Yes. Uh, yeah, and, and wrestling, you know, for the Inuit was something that, that lent itself to their surroundings. It's something that could be done from the knees inside of, of snow dwellings on those those cold nights when people are together and they're looking for, for something uh, interesting to easy do. Easy entertainment, yes. E- e- yeah, easy entertainment. But, you know, we, we can also move beyond the, the superficialities of pure entertainment because beyond being a game, it was also a, a form of greeting when, when meeting someone. It was a really wrestling was a show of good faith, you know, effectively the equivalent of a very uh, vigorous handshake. Um. And it wasn't even just the um, the Inuit who who practiced wrestling. Are you a wrestler yourself, Nathan? Broadly defined, I'm a wrestler. I've done some freestyle wrestling and judo, uh, but mostly I've been involved in the art and sport of Brazilian jiu-jitsu. Um, I've partaken in that in some capacity for a little over 25 years. Well, okay, so let's let's take that for a second because you've already thrown a lot of concepts, and maybe it's time to. To, to again explain that a little bit because I think that there are as you've pointed out there's a competition of styles going on here as as the the game develops in 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 late 19th century Manitoba um, now you mentioned in your book uh, Aubert Coté who uh, who actually won a bronze medal uh, for Canada in the freestyle bantamweight category at the London Olympics in 1908 so arguably he was the most accomplished wrestler uh, of a particular kind, right? Uh, and then there's showbiz wrestling. Uh, can you tell us, so catch as catch can, jiu-jitsu, what, what, briefly, what defines each one of these styles? And you also talk about Greco-Roman in your book. I do, yeah. I mean, I can, I can speak very uh, briefly about it. Broadly defined, catch as catch can, wrestling allows you to take grips on um, any part of the body within reason. Uh, meaning you can grab both the upper uh, torso and the legs. And the objective of that is to get a person on the mat and then uh, get their shoulders to the mat and maneuver them uh, into a point where their shoulders are touching and then you get a victory. Now, also, particularly in the professional ranks, uh, athletes could be encouraged to do that by applying holds that in the amateur catch-as-catch-can ranks would have been uh, prohibited. Now, Greco-Roman, uh, somewhat similar to uh, catch-as-catch-can, but you couldn't grab the uh, couldn't grab the legs. Okay. All right. So it's an upper body wrestling style, and it in fact originates in uh, early 19th century France. So those were the the two big styles in um, in Manitoba. Although there were other cultural practices uh, that were more unique to particular regions of Europe that were imported. We're not talking about showbiz wrestling here, are we? Well, we're talking about uh, a little of both, actually, and in some cases, they they come together. So both of them kind of develop at the same time. So um, during the late 19th century, uh, we see both amateur and professional wrestling develop. So uh, professional wrestling, what we might term showbiz wrestling, but I want to kind of uh, break that down a little bit ultimately if, 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 if I can. Um, so it was the first to really get off the ground in, in popularity. And 
you don't really see the rise of amateur wrestling in Manitoba until um, really after the founding of the Manitoba Amateur Athletic Association, and that was in, in 1907. So there's a story here, and it goes back to a bit of infighting in central Canada. So in, in central Canada, I'm speaking here specifically of Montreal and, and Toronto, which then is now the great metropoles of, of, of Canada. Uh, there was a an athletic war being waged between two factions. So you have the Montreal-based Amateur Athletic Federation of Canada and the Canadian Amateur Athletic Union, um, and its gravity of power was was in Toronto. So both organizations claimed to be the uh, to be national in nature at that time, uh, although they weren't. They were located in Central Canada. But what happened was that the the CAAU out of Toronto, it adopted a strategy and it truly went national. And you see provincial affiliates begin to pop up all over the place. And that's what happened in Manitoba. So that's the point where you see amateur wrestling get its firm footing in the province under an organization that was effectively able to monopolize the definition of what it meant to be uh, amateur. And that's what this athletic war was really fought over, what it meant to be an amateur. The Montreal faction wanted the pros and the amateurs to be able to mix uh, and the Toronto faction wanted uh, never the twain shall meet, and ultimately the strict definition um, won out. Now, yeah, so the the amateur the amateur sport again is something that our listeners would recognize as what we see during the Olympics, for example. Uh, it would be somewhat similar, although the rules have changed to the point where, in, in many respects, it's unrecognizable. There'd be a lot more. Um, Mat wrestling at that point in time, there wasn't the the same point system that you have now, which which focuses more on uh, takedowns in the international freestyle. It's probably more similar to the American folk style, um, which uh, which focuses a lot on mat wrestling. But uh, we have to be careful here because the professional wrestling that existed in Manitoba in 1907, as the amateur sport is on the ascent really looked very little like the professional wrestling we would recognize today. So uh, to, to perhaps uh, channel uh, the the famed uh, Quebec historian, uh, channel is the spirit of Guy Fergot in his classic essay, uh, Canadian Society and the French Regime, we have to be careful not to read history backwards based upon what we now observe. Um, wrestling matches as a rule, uh, 120 years ago or so, uh, looked genuine. And I'm talking about professional wrestling matches here. And this is because most of the money was made on gambling. It wasn't made on ticket sales. So they are playing to the gambler and the gambler's expectations every, every bit as much as they are playing to the expectations of a paying audience. But with that said, there were always concerns around the honesty of the encounters uh, but those concerns were not necessarily a product of something that was easily discernible to the naked eye. Because in this case, professional wrestling within our, our living memory is, is extremely theatrical. We have to cast that aside when we are looking at professional wrestling uh, in terms of how it was performed in 1907. And yet your book is full of, of remarkable characters. Um, I mean, again, I, I'm going to be nostalgic a little bit and, and remember my time sitting on my grandparents' couch <clears throat> in Montreal and watching guys like Johnny Rougeau and Dino Bravo and Killer Kowalski and Abdullah the Butcher and Joe LeDuc 
and my absolute favorite uh, character, Mad Dog Vachon. <laughs> Reading your book, Manitoba, at the turn of the century, has got a whole range of wild characters. Uh, tell me about the McKeons, for example. Yeah, I mean, the uh, wild characters is, is an understatement in, in <laughs> some cases. Um, so professional wrestling was, or professional sport writ large was always a concern amongst the, uh, the amateur folks that there was something skullduggerous going on here. And if you could pay someone to win, you could pay someone to lose. Mm. And, um, you know, the, the, the professionals were characterized as, as dirty athletes along those lines. Um, so <laughs> if there was ever an, Exhibit A for what uh, amateur officials were warning about around the the dangers with uh, professionalism. It might be uh, the McEwens. Um, you know, we've always uh, I, I found a few people. I used to pronounce it McCown uh, when I was looking into it, but I, I met a few people that had that last name, and um, they go with McEwen. So I, I think I'll go with that. Okay, I stand so. Yeah, well, I mean, I might be, I might stand corrected too, because unfortunately, I, I can't ask these folks. But uh, you know, the McEwen brothers—they emigrated from Ontario in the late 1870s. So, in terms of uh, you know who they were, uh, they were part of a a broad settlement trend that saw Manitoba's Métis population come to be dwarfed numerically by former Ontarians in the the decade after Manitoba's entry into Confederation. But uh, beyond demographics, they were very uh, <laughs> they were very far from average. Uh, the McEwen brothers they were heavily involved in the early sporting culture in uh, in Winnipeg during its early early boom years. So we're talking in the eighteen seventies into the eighteen eighties. Uh, there were four of them. There was Peter the eldest, and then there was Ed and and Jack and James. Uh, now, James wasn't much of a sportsman, but the rest were. And any time there was money to be made around sport or somebody had to hold the stakes around the, the gambling for a sporting contest, well, the, the McEwens were there. And um, they were really a, a notorious bunch. Uh, among them, Ed was probably the most uh, uh, notorious. He was a, a prize fighter. Uh, and he raised uh, dogs for dog fighting. So b before there was a transcontinental railway, there were links down to, to Minnesota. Uh, he'd take his dogs down across the border to, to fight. Uh, you know, people were arrested for dog fighting during that period. Uh, but the public and, and by extension, the press were, you know, uh, quite a bit more comfortable with that activity than, than today. So uh, Ed McEwen would boast about his, his dogs fighting prowess and, and hurl out challenges for for money, you know, the McEwen brothers, all of them were uh, regularly in and out of court, uh, usually on some charge related to uh, an act of violence or, or something along those lines. Um, Ed owned a, uh, a hotel with a gymnasium attached and it became a bit of a hot spot for Winnipeg's uh, sporting uh, gray world or, or underworld. Um, now, for, for a lot of people, you know, especially the rising tide of social reformers, the McEwens probably represented everything they didn't want to see in Winnipeg. You know, people who gambled, who slung booze, who uh, settled disputes by dummying people with their fists and, and, and generally operated on the periphery of the law. Uh, they were great representatives for a, uh, 
a settled, a modern, uh, civilized gateway to the West. But there's a flip side to that, right? Because this isn't just the story of, of middle-class reformers or people who wanted through amateur sport to teach sporting values. Uh, among many, you know, likely people of, of less financial means and with less social capital, folks like the McEwens were probably local heroes of a sort. And mm-hmm. maybe to, to draw connections to, to Montreal where you grew up, yeah. um, you know, an example you might be familiar with, uh, Joe Mufferon. And that's probably something that I'm, I'm butchering in terms of pronunciation. Uh, Mufara Joe for, for people in the English world who is, who is immortalized in a song by Stomping Tom Connors. And, uh, you know, is probably copied, uh, by, uh, by Americans and, and Paul Bunyan. So here is a, a figure whose street battles in old Bytown are, are really still the stuff of, of legend amongst French Canadians. So, you know, we've got a guy like Ed McEwen and the McEwen brothers who are kind of in that same mix. Uh, if we bring it back to wrestling, uh, the wrestler in the family was Jack, uh, or John. Uh, apparently he was a, a pretty strong guy. He was in the uh, moving business. So why not, if, if moving piano, start moving human flesh <laughs> and, uh, uh, on, on the mat. And he was the guy who really brought widespread attention to wrestling as a professional sport. Uh, in Winnipeg in the early 1880s. You mentioned in your book that there are a lot of eth- there's a lot of ethnic representation in, in the various r- wrestling leagues, if I can call it that. The Icelandic immigrants uh, arriving in, in Winnipeg and in Manitoba have a proud representative and a fellow called Charles Gustafsson. Can you tell us about him? Yeah, well, Charles Gustafsson, uh, I suppose... Uh, Charles Gustafson was very unlike the McEwens. Uh, if ever there was a, in, in fact, a counterpoint to the amateur allegations of uh, professional malfeasance, it was Charles Gustafson. Uh, he came along about 20 years after the heyday of the McEwens and uh, beyond owning a hotel, really the similarities seem to, to end. He was, uh, you know, sort of a strong advocate for organizations in his own uh, ethnic community. And very little, if any, controversy was attributed directly to him. Um, he was certainly, however, a, a, uh, sporting hero of sorts amongst his, uh, his own uh, immigrant community. And beyond that, he became very well known and well respected within Winnipeg sporting circles. And uh, he tended to wrestle within the rules. And he more than anyone else could be considered as the local professional wrestling star in Manitoba before the Great War. And a proud representative of the Icelandic immigrant community. Um, Actually, he was a, a representative of the, the Swedish community. It's, but but there, there's something... Oh, is it? Okay. I'm sorry. No, that, that's quite a right. It's, it's interesting because if we go to census records, there was sometimes some confusion around that. So it, it can be... I mean, they're both both Scandinavian. Uh, they both had sizable population representations in, in Manitoba. And in one instance, in, in uh, census records, uh, we see Swedish wrestlers being misidentified as Icelandic. So it is a, it is a very excusable um, uh, thing to uh, sort of uh, mix up, if you will. So it seems as though, but I, I come back to the point about how wrestling lent itself because it's a sport that can be practiced by any human 
there seems to have been uh, sort of a, a an ethnic rivalry in that in that uh, melting pot of Winnipeg at the turn of the century. You you mention um, uh, there's a long line of terrible Turks, for example. The the Turks are known still today as phenomenal wrestlers. Um, people were playing up on that kind of ethnicity, weren't they? Yeah, they were. You know, if you look at the uh, you know Turkish wrestling, uh, it, it goes back to you know the, the Kirk Pinar festival, for example, that is still being staged in in Turkey. I mean, it goes back many many centuries. It goes back to before the North American uh, colonial colonial period, and the uh, you know the the Turkish invasion, if you will, was was starting at the tail end of the. Uh, the 19th century with uh, Yusuf, the terrible Turk, uh, who stormed the, <laughs> the mats of America before drowning aboard the Burgonia uh, ship disaster in, oh, really? uh, yes, in, in 1898. But uh, a few years later, uh, Winnipeg was paying uh, home to its own uh, Turkish wrestlers. We have a wrestler who went by the name of Muradula, and he appeared on, um, yeah, he appeared on Winnipeg mats at the, at the turn of the century. It was a lot of fun. People enjoyed the sport, and people liked to watch it. Yeah, it it, it certainly was a, a sport that played on, uh, you know, issues of ethnicity, um, racism. In fact, certainly played uh, a significant role in in building uh, interest around uh, wrestling matches. There was that uh, fear of the foreigner that was. Uh, well exploited by local promoters, and certainly this was the case as early as the uh, turn of the 20th century. Um, you know, it's, it's not surprising that these sentiments uh, found fertile ground because they were. Uh, and again, we can always tie wrestling to to broader social currents. Uh, it, they came during a time when, uh, under Wilfrid Laurier and his Minister of the Interior Clifford Sifton, who was a, a Brandon man, uh, the Canada was moving to liberalize its immigrate, uh, immigration policies. And this didn't necessarily sit well with everyone, especially those who wanted to preserve the Anglo character of, of the province that had really been consciously cultivated in many respects in the, the post-Confederation period. So, you know, uh, to, to use the, the verbiage of the time, uh, quote-unquote, swarthy wrestlers from faraway eastern locales were, you know, they were easy to root against. Right. Um, your book is devoted to uh, to wrestling mostly, um, but can you tell us how wrestling was different uh, from other sports? And again, in terms of Western development, in terms of Manitoba's development, was this was the experience of wrestling similar to other sports? Did how did it compare, for example, to hockey or or baseball or lacrosse or or whatever whatever sport you might uh, you might want to consider? Was there a particularity to wrestle, wrestling history? I can really answer that in uh, using two lines. Again, I could probably do that by looking at the amateur sport and then looking at the professional sport. So in the amateur ranks, it was really quite similar to other one-on-one -on -one sports. So once the links were made between the provincial and national organizations in the first decade of the 20th century, it was pretty similar. But what happens is that as time moves along, some of the team sports begin to break away from the national amateur organization. We see this in the 1930s. Uh, by then, the national organization is the Amateur Athletic Union of Canada. 
Uh, hockey starts to break away. They've got enough interest. There's enough infrastructure there for them to, to run their own show. Um, or, and there were, there were other uh, disputes that are probably beyond the, the context of our discussion here. But wrestling stayed with the AAU. Uh, as an amateur sport, it really never commanded the same attention as other team sports, such as hockey. Now, among the pros, there was really nothing like the same level of organization that we see develop in the pro ranks with team sports. So when professional leagues are beginning to develop, uh, the most famous uh, being the uh, NHL, which evolved out of the uh, National Hockey Association, uh, we don't see an equivalent in wrestling. So local promoters remained pretty local. So we even see newspaper challenges persisting into the 1920s. And that was something that was really a thing of the distant past in a lot of other uh, high-profile sports such as hockey, where uh, you know, hockey games would, would come out of some sort of a club challenging another uh, in newspapers. That's still going on in, in the 20s. And for the most part, wrestlers were independent actors. They arranged their own bookings. Uh, maybe they had a manager to help them with that. And it wasn't really until after the Second World War where you start to see wrestling become more organized uh, under the banner of a single international promotional entity. Uh, that was the NWA, the National Wrestling Alliance. We had you know, local promoters who controlled a, a geographic territory. Um, yeah, but there too, not everyone was part of that organization. So Manitoba was tied in with Vern Gagne's AWA. Uh, but that, that, that's, of course, well beyond the, the era covered by thrashing seasons. But in terms of the regional issue, you know, in Western Canada, you've got a few large centers and great distances in between. So professional wrestling was a little bit different than what you might see in, in, in uh, Montreal. In Montreal, we start to see weekly wrestling cards. Uh, one organization sort of controls that early on. But here in the West, wrestling tended to be a bit more sporadic. It would be very popular and then it would die off. Uh, you know, often due to some some controversy, admittedly, that, that befell it. Um, we would see some attempts by promoters to hold regular cards on a weekly or perhaps a monthly basis, but it wasn't something that necessarily endured year after year. And uh, wrestling was really a, a cyclical sport. But when the stars aligned, when a local population was hungry for the sport, and they had the right talent in place and a good venue, wrestling could rival the greatest of any sporting events in terms of public enthusiasm. Uh, well, anyway, you describe it very well in your book, uh, Nathan. Let me ask you uh, the, the classic Champlain Society question. How did you go about writing your book? What were your sources? I, I believe that Thrashing Seasons is... Uh, I believe it's the most intensively and exhaustively uh, source book on wrestling history that, that has ever been written. Sure. Uh, <laughs> so uh, I, I might be wrong on that, but, but to my knowledge, so the, the main public record for wrestling is, uh, you know, not surprisingly found in newspapers. So I did draw on newspapers and uh, research was conducted in, in five different languages and I found that was important because you wanted to see how wrestling was represented in a broad variety of, of cultures. Um, it also utilizes legislation, 
bylaws, uh, military records. We have, we have files from organizations uh, such as amateur sporting bodies, uh, YMCAs, uh, labor union records, uh, fur trade journals, and, uh, you know, in some instances, even court proceedings. Mm. Yeah. Now, you end your book as the Depression is about to hit. Are we, uh, can we expect a sequel? Or are you going to leave that to somebody else? Well, you know, as, as far as uh, sequel go, uh, sequels go to, uh, you know, history of wrestling in, in Manitoba, I don't, I don't think so. Um, other historians, uh, you know, notably in this respect, uh, Vance Nevada, um, he's done a, a very solid job of documenting wrestling um, in Western Canada during the Depression period and, and beyond into the, the 1990s and, and really the, the early 2000s. Um, I felt my role was to tell the first part of that story, to to tell what the genesis of prairie wrestling. Um, but with that said, wrestling didn't develop exactly the same in Manitoba as in other parts of, of the country. And, and I suppose I've already hinted to some extent with, with, with differences between Manitoba and, and Montreal. So with that in mind, I'm working with uh, Pat Laprade and Bertrandy Bear to tell the in-depth story of Montreal's early wrestling history in a time frame that uh, uh, effectively parallels uh, thrashing seasons. Well, I certainly look forward to that. Well, thanks very much. You know, the, the objective is to create a, a prequel to their, their fairly well-known survey of uh, Montreal wrestling, Mad Dogs, Midgets, and, and Screwjobs. So, uh, you know, which really looks at that, that era that you grew up with, right? Well, Nathan Hatton, thank you very much for opening this new window on the Canadian past. It's a very enjoyable book. Well, thank you very much. My guest today was Nathan Hatton. His book is Thrashing Seasons, Sporting Culture in Manitoba, and the Genesis of Prairie Wrestling. And it's published by the University of Manitoba Press. You've been listening to Witness to Yesterday, the Champlain Society podcast on Canadian history. Please visit our website at champlainsociety.ca where you'll find more about what the Society does. There's even a place to become a member and a sustainer of this Society if you like these conversations about Canada's past. Please let people know how much you like these dialogues by using whatever social media you use. We'd be really proud of your support. This podcast is made possible by the members of the Champlain Society who are making an investment in the hard work of bringing to life original documents in Canadian history. Thank you. Thanks also to the Hudson's Bay Company History Foundation, the L.R. Wilson Institute of History at McMaster University, and a consortium of Canadian scholarly book publishers that includes the University of Toronto Press, the University of British Columbia Press, and the University of Ottawa Press. My name is Patrice Dutin. This interview was recorded in the middle of a pandemic on September 23rd, 2020, by our wonderfully skilled producer, Jessica Schmidt. Thank you, everybody. We'll see you next time.